and welcome to the National Gallery of Ireland podcast. Uh, my name is Mark Canton. I'm an improviser, actor, writer, musician and podcaster. Uh, I don't know a lot about art, but I'm looking to learn. This series of episodes is about the current exhibition in the National Gallery, Shaping Ireland, Landscapes in Irish Art. So I'm going to be chatting to different people, artists and non-artists, about landscapes. In this first episode, I talked to poet Paula Meehan about landscapes and also about the poem that she wrote uh, for the exhibition, which is called The Island, A Prospect. So here's my discussion with Paula Meehan. Paula Meehan, welcome. Thank you. Um, so we, you, you were commissioned by the uh, National Gallery to write a poem um, uh, relating to the exhibition that's on in the gallery. I was, I was commissioned to write a piece okay. in response to the images. Yes. Uh, and I felt that it was such a powerful and beautiful show. I felt that the only suitable response was to make a poem myself. Right, so the gallery said you could write... Uh, whatever I wanted, or... I had complete freedom. Oh, okay, right. Really the only kind of commission you'd be interested in taking on. Really? Yeah. Ah, yeah. So, um, I loved the images. They sent me the images and I knew some of the, the work and I knew some of the contemporary artists. So, I was very, very happy to... Uh, to actually sit down and make a poem as a kind of tribute to yeah. what I was seeing, but also to uh, what I love of the island too. Yes, the island of Ireland. Yeah, and to remember a time when I was very excited by the look of the island, the visuals of the yeah. like, which would have been, I suppose, coincident with my teenage years when I started hitching out of the city. Right. And, you know, spending time in... Uh, remote places, islands, up mountains, following river valleys, getting to know the lie of the land. Yeah. And uh, one of my teachers, the great American poet Gary Snyder, was climbing mountains in the northwest of America. And he, he said, is there a senator for this? You know, who represents... Who represents... The actual land itself. And that's a kind of a recurrent theme through not just contemporary poetry, but his utterance had a big effect on contemporary poetics. Yeah. Um, but also on, you know, the whole, through the whole history of poetry in all languages, the poet has sacred responsibility for speaking on behalf of animals, uh, inanimate as it's called nature, though. Uh, I would believe everything has soul and animation. Yeah. So I was delighted to take the opportunity to, to make some lines and uh, to put it in the form of a poem. I like that idea of a, a senate for the the things that can't talk. Yes, like exactly. The, the Shannon, you know, is a strange institution that we have now. I, mean, I don't know what your opinion on the Shannon is. Well, I'd hate to be totally in the hands of the the first house because um, a lot of our equality legislation wouldn't be on the books. Yeah. It was through the Senate that people like Mary Robinson were able to bring in uh, bills that uh, directly affected our ability as women to earn a, a living. Yeah, yeah, it would be interesting to have a Shannon just for representative. Well, Ecuador the... has enshrined what they call Pacamama into their constitution that yeah. anything that damages the resources that are held in common by the people, which is the land itself, uh, that that's a crime. 
Right. Yeah. 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 There's, yeah, there's yeah. Consequences, whether in unstable political regimes, uh, the constitution can be adhered to, as we know ourselves, mm-hmm. um, is another question. But yeah. that gesture of um, putting a rein on the exploitation of the land just for profit, rather than the health and well-being of the people, yeah. I think is yeah. really interesting. And yeah. I'd love to see more. Um, more responsibility taken like that. Though we have here on the island taken responsibility for uh, pre- preventing fracking. Yes. You know, the yeah. county council, Sleetron County Council was right out there at the, in the lead. Really? To forbid, forbid fracking. fracking. Just say no. Yeah. And hopefully the energy companies might get the message that um, it's going to be too much trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that for a small return. Yes. Yeah. Um, when you so when you were asked to write a piece and you decided on a poem, was it how did it was it immediate or you were like I know what or did you have to sit with it for a while? How did how did that work? Uh, well, I let the images inspire me. Yeah. And the, the memories they evoked of sometimes being in those places, you know, being down in the west or. Uh, you know, down in, South, in uh, West Cork or down in Connemara, sometimes living in those places. So I let both the images of the artists and the, my own memory through my body uh, make the lines. But I was also very inspired by one of the er- later pieces, the salt bowls from County Tyrone, right, um, which were mined uh, from an ancient sea. It's one of the last pieces uh, for the exhibition. And I just found that very impressive and the ideas around that. So I wanted to work with that as the image I would work towards. Okay, yeah. right. Uh, um, like a trajectory of the piece? Is yeah, that because right. they're carved out of an ancient sea. And the salt of our body is a kind of a memory or an echo of that. And mm. I feel there's so much grief over the destruction of the planet mm-hmm. that we could weep an ancient sea. R- yes, yeah. Do you know, with grief, like... And it's, you know, it's... it's A lot of contemporary poetry is elegiac response to destruction of the environment. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, do you want to read the poem? And yeah, then we can I'd talk about it more. Yeah. Great. The island a prospect. We learned that Ireland was a temperate island from our first geography books, the climate mild, the Gulf Stream a blessing that saved us from freezing, though we live at the same latitude as Moscow. And the child I was found that word disappointing. No earthquakes, hurricanes, typhoons, volcanoes, floods. Temperate, a dreary, wet city Sunday sound. I took to astral travel out the school window, lift off on the storied wings of myth and legend and bitter tales of landlords and emigration, of plantation, rebellion, famine and ruin. They offered us a trope of the traumatised nation. They made us feel the land had failed us. They bludgeoned us with shame, left us lost, fearing our own shadows. I grew up. 
I roved out in blue breeches of denim. I walked the roads. I slept in ditches. I fell in love with a mountain tarn. Its black eye mirrored the stars. The island took hold of me. I sculpted valleys, glacial erratics, moraine, esker, bog, karst, her meadows, her rivers, and beamed down from above planet Earth's, our grave mother as seen from the moon. The mitochondrial tug of eternity, that slow pulse of evolutionary regard from deep within the ancient reptilian brain, seat of instinct. From such a critical distance, my neo-aboriginal imagination must dream new endings, must fashion prophetic words, fearing they'll not be heard by our posterity. Can we trust the visions teeming in the hours of trance, knowing art is toxic, little arrows of guilt, cadmium, chromium, cobalt, magnesium, lead. To make paper is to make poison, no hands clean. All our craft work, all our magic, this we trade for bee music, music of otter, hare, kite, stoat, the gold-nebbed blackbird's blissful song of happenstance. Last week I walked to Feltrum in the pouring rain, considered the redundant nature of its name, Fueldrim, from the Irish means Ridge of the Wolves. The wolves are long extinct, and half gone is the ridge, its requiem, the thud and blast of explosive. Limestone lorried away to serve that beast, the boom, the turbo cycle over and over again. High on Feltrum Hill, Nathaniel Hone loved to sketch Lambe and Ireland's eye, the wild coastal fractals. And Samuel Beckett's favourite view was downwards to St. Eta's psychiatric hospital. You're on earth. There's no cure for that. Our human span an eye blink. To save the world is not so simple as to mine an ocean for each salt tear we've wept. Great. Do you mind if we just yeah. talk through some of the bits of it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you start off the first stanza there about our, our temperate climate and how boring it sounds. Well, this is the child's vision, you know. It was in our first geography books. Ireland is an island. It has a temperate climate. Yeah. And you think temperate, and, and you know the teacher explains temperate, and you find out what the word means. And, you know, you're reading of these exciting, adventurous places with dramatic uh, uh, elemental weather. Mm. Um, So it's that, but, I mean, I, I... Obviously, I'm drawing attention to the fact that nowhere is temperate anymore. Right. You know, we don't know what weather, yeah. what season. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're we in don't the flux we're... of climate change as dramatic as the, res- the retreat of the last ice age, mm-hmm. 
which sculpted mm, yeah. this island and yeah. gave us our characteristic features. Yeah. Sometimes it is, yeah, it is kind of, it, similarly, I would have found it boring or, you know, you, you dream of deserts or yeah. mountains and all this kind of stuff. But now I do find myself slightly grateful for those things because it is so... Totally, let's keep the temperature. Yes, you know? totally. Um, but even Ireland compared to other places now, you know, you're kind of like, well, we don't have, we don't have those kinds of storms or those mm. kinds of earthquakes. We do get the present, or presentiments of them, you know, in the big storms that have hit us. I have a friend, the poet Paddy Bush down in Kerry, and uh, he, had a, he has a beautiful garden right on the sea's edge, and he had a little uh, arbour with a Buddha statue in it. And there, a few years ago, this, this is down in um, Balmaskelix, on the Kerry mm-hmm. Coast. Uh, one wave came in and just ate three feet of the garden, Buddha uh-huh. and all, which is a kind of a per, uh, perfect message <laughs> in impermanence. <laughs> yes. But you know, it was eating up roads along Clare, the really? Atlantic. Yeah, forms. yeah. So we have, you know, historically, and even in the ancient annals, mentions of you know, severe weather and strange weather events. But, you know, it's, um, we, we can't really uh, predict the way we once did, you know, when the season will come. Yes. Even in, in common suburban gardens, I have a, a small patch. And, uh, I mean, winter flowering things are flowering now and things that shouldn't be in bloom in, in mm. over Christmas where I was filling loads of flower vases with stuff from the garden. Yeah. Daffodils at Christmas, you know. Yeah, and do you? I feel I. I suppose it's always been on our mind since I was a kid. You know, the environmental changing. But do you feel it's particularly in the consciousness the last while? I mean, we just seen the well, school the strikes kids. and yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. And because I know in my own generation you were treated as a bit of a nutcase whenever you're brought up. Yeah. Uh, these issues, or you know, uh, oh, don't wreck our buzz. That's very negative, man. <laughs> um, but our generation would have been the ones who occupied um, Carnesaw Point and stood up to the introduction of nuclear energy. Mm. Uh, so there, there always had, there is a great tradition of resistance, and you know the the people who resist fracking, for instance, or the people who fought against the pipeline down in um, in Kerry, uh, sorry, in in Mayo, yeah, uh, the Shell to Sea campaign. Yeah, like there is, there's a strong environmental movement here, very yeah. strong since the seventies, but it doesn't. I mean, it's you know with the relationship with information dissemination and the media is always problematic, like getting ideas out. But when you see secondary school students uh, really being motivated and taken to the streets, then you can feel that there is an energy to, to affect change yeah. from the ground up, you know? Do you, do you ever, do you find it difficult to figure out, you know, which we, which are the most important things to deal with with the environment? Do you know what I mean? Well, you like just, you feel powerless. Yeah. A lot of people feel powerless because um, they're in routines or they're in situations where they don't have a lot of choice. Mm-hmm. 
even as consumers, though yeah. you can use that choice. Um, but there are very promising signs, like more and more commentators are saying we're at peak oil, and we're even as a country we're divesting from fossil fuels. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, we're behind the curve, but we are. Uh, it is now policy. Yeah. So the universities are divesting. Uh, all corporations that want to stay in with their consumer base are starting to divest, and the oil industries themselves are decommissioning their plants. Yeah. So the, that has turned. I mean, the question is whether it's it has turned fast enough everywhere at the one time. But in the daily life we live, your head would fall off if you carried all that around. Yes, So exactly. I mean, yeah. I even don't even know, you know, if I go into a shop, whether just to get well, a cup of coffee. You've got a, yeah, a cup of coffee start. there yeah. from a chain. You spend hours reading the label. <laughs> this is it, yeah. Which, where, what, what can I wear? What can I eat? What can I... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your second stand, then, you talk about daydreaming, I, mm-hmm. I feel, and... And the history of Ireland, and and that interesting phrase there that we we began to believe that the land had failed us. Yeah, I I really I have started to resist that. Um, you know the the sense that the land has failed us. What failed us were the political systems of the time. Particularly in, in regards to the famine. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, we got an image of oh the potatoes failed us, the land yeah. failed us. Too many people. We had to. Um, so the image of the land itself, I think there was a kind of a shame built in, and then that was allied with, oh, kind of very ignorant attitudes to rural life, which I think still persist, yeah. to the kind of resources people in rural areas need to survive these yeah. new times. But we're certainly given a very dark image of Ireland. Um, so, in fact, we I think we need to kind of concentrate on how much the land nourishes and has the potential to even nourish us further. Yeah. You know, to be more self-reliant with what the bounty of this island. Yes. Mm. Yeah, the family was always kind of like, oh no. Like, it it seemed to be, we we did it every year in history class. I was like, oh no, not the family again. Like, oh, this is a real drag. Yeah, but it's such a significant event. And, guess, well, the really irony, of course, is that we had pre-colonisation a uh, very rich diet and a very um, sort of communal holding of land. Really? Under the, under the Breton system. Yeah. Before primogeniture and, you know, a more Norman version of ownership of land that would pass down in the male line. Yeah. So the more collective, uh, possibly even... What I think of as more Aboriginal relationship with land was, I think, bred out of us. Really. So it all became about ownership. Yeah. Uh, in individual ownership within a family, within a person that they could. Yes. Uh, and with that comes power. So those energies interest me. What do you mean, those energies? Of, because the famine was a political failure. Yeah. You know, uh, because people started to grow the heavier potato, the lumper, in order to, because it was had more water, it was heavier. So the tenant farmers, who were the victims really of 
the appropriation of land by, yeah. by the few. I mean, they had no choice but to grow these heavy potatoes that made up at market the price they needed to pay the tenant rent. Right, yeah. Yeah. On smaller and smaller subdividings yeah. of the land. Of, the, of their land. So that's yeah. politics and power. Mm-hmm. It's, not the, the, it's the way the land was held and owned that caused the famine because the, the, the lumber had no resistance, blight resistance, and other varieties had better blight resistance, but they weren't going to make the rent. But the, yes. You know? Yeah. Great. Well, let's move on then into the um, third verse where you talk about um, travelling in your teenage years. Yeah, rambling off. I mean, probably more innocent times or maybe we had a bigger squadron of guardian angels looking after us, but Mm -hmm. we just rambled off, um, hitchhiked, cycled. Was this, yeah, was this common amongst your friends? Yeah, Did everybody off, was? We might go off, two or three of us, or sometimes more. And Where were you living at that point, sorry? Uh, I was out, I'd moved from the centre of the city out to Finglas. Right. But we um, would go to the Onoiga hospital, hostels all over the country. Oh, yeah. There was a whole network of youth, what were called youth hostels. But we'd also, like, camp, take tents and go rambling and it was great you know get out we had bikes too we we'd cycle from Finglas down to the Dargal Valley mm-hmm. uh, in Wicklow yeah and hang out or cycle across to the coast regularly so I don't I mean I, I don't know nowadays that uh, certainly at the age I was I, I don't know if any of the kids would be let just rambled off like for days on end I don't know without yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, yes. The more, yeah, that's funny. The, the more easy it is to find, you know, to be in contact, the more children are not let out of that, of, of immediate sight. Yeah. So even if they could have a phone on them to say, well, I'm over here. Do you feel a great need in you to see all these, you know, the well, landscape? I a great that? need to get out from under the family's um, control right. with my pals, you know, yeah. we were just semi-feral, I would think. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah. And we had a great time. Are you? Did you grow up in a big family? Yeah, there were six of us in the family, um, and that would have been a, that would have been a modest family Absolutely. for the time. Yeah. Um, but no, I think the country, the allure of it, and festivals, music festivals, like the old flowers and sessions, and yeah. that was that was the whole thrust of life was to get out there and have that yeah. experience and the con- but the country did take hold um, the beauty of it you know the power of it to go out into mountains to go out uh, following rivers just the, what the things you would see mm. and the experience because I suppose that when you're that age you live in a very uh, kind of flux an emotional flux mm-hmm. and the land can provide in, in the moods and its own, and because my thing was poetry and song and music all, always, the actual music of the land itself, in in the weathers and the, the tunes of rivers and the bird song and the, it's just fantastic. It inspired you completely. Yeah. Yeah. And would you go looking for that inspiration for that too? I don't even to know find... that you would kind of name it that way. Yeah. You just knew that there was. This was beautiful, and 
there was, I mean, there's no such thing really as wilderness in Ireland mm -hmm. because it's been worked over. The mark of our human hand is everywhere. Uh, field systems, you know, patterns of growing even today now, the motorways. You know, it's very hard to go into a landscape and say, this is wild. But we had forests and we have forests. You know, we had stretches where the hand was light. You know, the mark of our human hand was light. Right. Yeah. So the, the biodiversity is rich mm -hmm. and the creatures that can have habitat are many and plentiful. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of diversity or biodiversity, um, you then had us into uh, micro uh, mitochondrial DNA in the next verse. Yeah, the sense of... Um, just again to emphasize that survival thing like we all hear everyone alive at this moment is at the end of an extraordinary chain of survival um, yeah and we do have an awful lot of um, we're hardwired to survive yeah and we have that going for us mm -hmm. and there are like I think instinct is one of the great um, survival tools, mm -hmm. whether it's your instinct if you're going into a toxic place, whether actual toxicity, you know, of the environment or psychically toxic place where as a being you might feel in danger or open to be damaged or places where you just automatically feel there's, there's a, a danger. Um, we, we're tuned to that, that's mm -hmm. how we survive. Uh, and to find safe places to reproduce and continue the species. I mean, as a kind of an animal species, we're hardwired like the rest of creation for survival. Um, so we have a lot going for us, and if we could uh, work with that uh, ancient, more ancient kind of knowledge, I think uh, we might find directions for what's happening, how to survive, for children to survive these coming times. If you look at old cultures, they often have, they've left very little trace, some of them, because their survival, their shelter, their relationship with the land is so light. Yes. Nomadic peoples, if you think of like teepees and yurts and, um, you know, There's less permanent. Yeah, and, permanent and I wonder if, like, at, and I know at cutting edge architecture now, there are moves towards that kind of biodegradable shelter that mm -hmm. can be used in emergency situations. In emergency situations. As well as more, you know, longer term. Yeah. Because it's not the big issue. How do we shelter ourselves? in with huge shifting migratory populations. Right, yeah. You know, we are so privileged here, even in this time of dreadful homelessness, we have the capacity to, to solve it. Yes, yeah? yes. We're in a relatively safe land where we don't need to yeah. evacuate. Yeah. Yeah, touch wood. Mm. Um, so then, oh, well then you talk about how, in the next verse you're talking about how um, kind of the creation of art is in a way poisoning the thing that it's, you know, describing. Yeah, and, and often that it celebrates and I suppose yeah. it is, it's again, it's, um, it's been a conversation in art 
uh, in sculpture as well, for, uh, you know, uh, particularly in sculpture with like land art, land art, you know, uh, projects that just melt back into the earth or that exist in landscape and maybe leave no trace except for its documentation which then again involves materials that are themselves toxic. Yes. It's that dance that, um, that interests me. I mean, it's a conundrum, and it's always been so, you know, going back to the Bronze Age, um, smelting, uh, the smelting copper and, iron and tin is a toxic process. You know, the making, uh, uh, the human being as a maker, yes. whatever is made has consequences. So never before in our history have the consequences of what we make become so critical. Yes, yeah. You know, as a, in, as a philosophical question, because, I mean, okay, there's a whole literature of critique around, even at the time of the Industrial Revolution, um, but there was still was a kind of a spacious feeling that if only they could move down the country or something, uh, or, you know, if that, people, yeah, there was, behind all those critiques, there is a sense that there's a, a huge expanse of earth that's still there. But you know, it's 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 said that if everybody alive today at this moment were to have a Western lifestyle, mm -hmm. we would need another two complete earths to resource it. I just before you arrived saw. Uh, Another image saying four, we need four Earths. Okay, well, it used so, to be. Used yes, to be, it's uh, increasing. Just minutes ago, it's increased ago. to four. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, aren't these the kind of elements that we work with? But at the same time, I do, you know, we are artists make magic. Uh, and we're very implicated in ways of changing mind mm -hmm. and ways of changing the way communities look at things and think about things. Yeah. So there is that interesting question about your responsibility as a maker, as an artist. Um, is, there, is there a particular piece of art, a painting or a poem or something else that you, strikes you now that changed your mind a lot? I mean, obviously a lot of art would, but like, was there in, in your life one that you were like, this completely, I couldn't see things the same way after I saw that or well, read that. Well, actually so many of them. Yeah. So many, you know, from a very early time, uh, ritualized sound or ritualized, any kind of ritual in the visual domain would always uh, snag my attention. Um, in recent years, I've really been looking at a poem called uh, the Musée de Beaux-Arts. It's Auden's poem. Okay. And he's standing, it's written in like many of those great poems of his of the late 30s. There's a kind of a sulfurous uh, smell of fascism in the air. Mm. Um, the, the, this poem is written in Brussels in the Musée, in the Museum of Fine Arts. And he's, look, he's in the Bruegel room and he's looking at the Bruegel paintings mm. and the, the, the language in the poem is taken from the paintings and the first line is about suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. And uh, he, the, the poem ends with a description of Bruegel's fall of Icarus. Mm -hmm. And in that it's Icarus who 
and his father, you know, his father made him the wings yeah. when they were escaping from Crete in a, a Bronze Age myth. Uh, the wings were held on with wax. Actually, some people believe that it is a, emblematic of the uh, procedure for making bronze itself, which is the lost really? wax method of casting, um, where you use wax yes. as a mould yes. that is then lost when the, um, the, the, the bronze is poured into the mould. Right. And you're left with the shape of the thing, like for tools and weapons, the, bronze, the whole Bronze Age was about that casting. So is that like a sit you can do one cast with that wax then? Is it like the wax is gone? Yeah, but your like, mould is there. Oh, the mo okay, sorry, you're right. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, Auden is talking about how uh, the, the astonishing, you know, life goes on as, as usual. They're ploughing, there's a fisherman, there's boats out in the bay, there's the far off city. And there an astonishing thing has happened. A boy has fallen from the sky. Mm. And in Bruegel's painting, there's his little feet hanging you know, his little feet floating and feathers around him and he's just sinking and there are, there's a ploughman and a fisherman and there's horses ploughing. Um, but I was looking at that, I was in that room looking at the painting, thinking about the poem and I realised that that's obviously, it's not a Greek landscape. I mean, I know Greece well, mm. this is not a Greek it's a northern European landscape. The clothes the ploughman is wearing are all northern European. The, um, the patterning of the land, even the colours, I've never seen them in Greece. The ships out on the bay are northern uh, caravals. The, uh, the far off shining city is not a Greek city, you know? Mm -hmm. So I went, you know, it, it brought me down to the actual island of Icaria. So in that way, I think a work of art, in, in, in the case I'm talking about, a poem and a painting, can propel you on a journey. Right. So I've been going back to that particular island for the last 12 years uh, as a place to work. So that's, oh, okay. a, you know, that would be like a, an engagement with one piece yeah. of art and one poem that have shaped the life. But I would think that that happens all the time in our lives, that things yes. shape us. But you know, and most of the things that shape you, you mightn't be aware of. Sure, that's absolutely, yeah. It's often things in, in childhood, like, you know, a story you read and you don't even, it's not even conscious that that's changed the way you think about things. But it's yeah. gone in. Yeah, but it's yeah, gone in, yeah. It's gone in. Then you talk about Feltrum. Yes, now that was from, Feltrum was, for both those artists that I mentioned, um, important, like Nathaniel Hone does describe how he liked to go up there, because you have a fantastic view of that most beautiful stretch mm. of the country, the, the north coast outside Dublin. Yeah. And you have a fantastic view right up to the Mourns on a clear day across to uh, Scotland. Um, and all the way down the south coast to, down to Balbriggan and down into Donabate and Port Ran and Malahide down to Baldoyle and the Hot Head and Lamb Bay, Ireland's Eye. A beautiful vision over the country. And it was Samuel Beckett's favourite view view yeah. from the top of Feltrum because he and he, he he said he looked down at St. Dieter's Psychiatric Hospital where the tears of the world are held mm. and it's actually 
uh, Beckett that I quote in the yes. last verse. He says, you're on earth. There's no cure for that. Mm-hmm. I've always loved that. Yes. Because uh, he always tells it as it is. But so, so that hill, but that hill is also been, and during the last, the Celtic ti- tiger, during the boom, it, it's gradually diminishing because it's been used for to quarry for yes. the bu- for the building industry. So the trucks are taking that hill away, and it's the hill of the wolves in Irish, Faltrum. Yeah. Uh, the ridge of the wolves, the ridge of the wolves. Now the wolves are gone. The wolves are gone, and the, yeah, and the ridge is on its yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm interested in how uh, parts of the landscape get eaten. Yeah. Like the way our bogs have been kind of eaten, the big yes. central bogs. Uh, so that interests me, uh, man's intervention and use of resources. Mm. Great. Um, well, actually, speaking of that area, you, we, the National Gallery has kind of asked you to talk about like a particular walk that you enjoy or you, you yeah. commonly do. Well, I, I walk um, regularly two or three times a week if I can. Uh, the walk from Baldoyle up to Holtz. Yeah. And that gives you, that's a north-facing walk. Right. The beaches I walk and the shoreline, they face north. So you're looking up to, across to Ireland's Eye, but up to Lamb Bay, and then all the way up on a clear day to the Mourne Mountains. And they say if you can see the Mourns, it's going to rain. And if you can't see them, it is raining. Mm-hmm. Um, but where I live in Baldoyle, Bolya on Doof Gaul, the town of the dark-haired strangers, which is in the area of Fingal, which is the uh, the zone of the Fiungal, the fair-haired strangers. So it may have been a kind of a Danish colony in a more Viking area. Fing- oh, oh, right. So Danish, yeah, will be darker-haired yeah. in a right. We think. I mean. Anyways, town, yeah, it's a low-lying estuarial land. It's drained, uh, a river drains into it, the Moyne, which is called the Main around that area. And it's a small, insignificant-looking river, culverted in parts, but it drains a huge area. The watershed is huge for North Dublin, that area. So it's a kind of threatened landscape in that we're in the district of Fingal and so Fingal, the emblem of the Fingal County Council is the um, the Brent Goose and the estuary there, uh, the Brent Geese over winter, they make their three and a half thousand mile journey here to the east coast estuaries every winter. They come, right. in, they come in the autumn and they overwinter. Yeah. So they're a constant presence through the winter, they're magnificent. Yeah. And they, they, they journey over my house, commuting between the eel grass in the estuary and the young grass in the back fields, behind the sports fields. Yeah. So they're a big presence in the sky out that way. And where, do they, where do they go the rest of the time? They go back up to the Arctic Circle, to oh, Greenland, really? three and a half thousand miles yeah. to, to lay their eggs and breed over the summer. And they're, um, they're very family-oriented and they mind each other. Like if one gets wounded or injured and it's migration time, two birds will stay with the one bird till they either 
die or heal up enough to fly on with and rejoin the migration. Mm. So they kind of, I love them. Um, mm. And they found, uh, there's a, you know, an ongoing study where they come in to land at Strangford Lock, like all the flocks land in there and rest for a while and feed up after their long journey. And then they spread out down the East Coast. But um, the oldest one they found from the ringing is 15 years old. Yeah. So that goose has been making the journey. Yeah, 15 you, you times. You know, so I kind of think they have some kind of prior. <laughs> they have some kind of what? Some kind of prior, um, you know, dibs on the landscape, like they, we should respect. Oh, yes, thing. more and than... And as I say, it is the token, to, totem bird of Fingal County Council, which mm-hmm. is why I don't understand why they go around spraying Roundup and other products on the fields that they, on the, the grass spaces that they, um, they graze off. No, it's not to discourage them, it's just part of parkland management. They spray, they spray the suburban streets so things don't grow up and uh, disrupt. It's a big problem all over, uh, you know, the, the spraying of pesticide and insecticides yeah. in the management of public lands. Yeah. So, but I mean, there are the ongoing kind of local suburban uh, issues that uh, that you face yes. as a citizen. But the walk, um, when I walk out, so I walk out down to the estuary and around Cush Point, which is a, a point there um, that looks right across to Port Marnock, to the Velvet Strand. And that's, I'm then into a dune system. Mm-hmm. And the estuary would have egrets who only come to very... Uh, environmentally clean places. They've just mm. come back in the last few years. And loads of overwintering birds, migratory birds. Uh, the dune system there is used, it's the oldest boating and golf club in Dublin. It's, the, it's now just the Sutton Golf Club, but it was the first golf club uh, yeah, in, in Dublin. Yeah, huh? in Ireland. Oh, in Ireland. Ireland. I know. And that's a dune system, it's quite small, but it's beautiful. And then that brings me along into the Hole in the Wall Beach, which is also known as Borough Beach. And I've been going there since my childhood. Um, I was brought there all through the summers of my childhood. It's a very dangerous beach because mm. of the, the channel, the, the tidal channel going out. Oh, yeah. And it's widely believed in our family that they were trying to drown us by taking us out there to swim as children. <laughs> Your parents were. <laughs> yeah, and my grandparents, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it is, it's a fantastic, uh, and it's, the beach changes mm. all the time, you know, one year, because it gets those big northerly storms. So again, right. one northerly storm can change the entire shape of the, the beach. The shape of the landscape. Yeah. Do, you, do you swim in the sea much? Uh, I swim a bit, it's unfortunately a lot of the time for our local beaches there are sometimes warnings, you know, either the jellyfish or the um, levels in the water of different uh, issues to do with um, how uh, the the, um, sewers operate. Yes. So after heavy rains that can be because there's old sewerage systems. Yeah. So, but that's in mediation in the sense that they are trying to to clean clean up all yeah. the beaches. But yeah, yeah, and we're very lucky. 
in Dublin that we have these fantastic places. So I don't sure, swim yeah. as much as I'd like to. Yeah. Once is too many for me. I, I'm not getting to the area. It's too, it's it's too, too cold. cold. No way. What are you, crazy? I don't understand people well, who... You know you're alive, at least. <laughs> for, for those 30 seconds before you pass out. And, uh, yeah. Very good. And does that is does that bring us to the end of the walk, or what's next on the path there? On the path of of your walk from. So I follow the I follow the Borough Beach up, and it goes around a point that is cut off at high tide. So you can only get up there now at the low tide, or else you can go the laneways, and that brings you around into Claremont Beach, and then that brings you right up to Holt. So it's lovely. You're, you're essentially walking across what was an esker laid down with the retreat of the ice maybe right. 20,000 years ago. Um, and that left a gravel esker across, which is, connects what was the mainland to what was the island of Holt. Holt okay. was one of those three, one of three islands. And I think Holt has still island mind. Yes. You know? Um, it still has very, very strong local characteristics, and it has all those walks, and it, you know, it has ancient monuments, souterrains up on the hills, and um, the, what's called Aidan's Grave, uh, which is a portal tomb just under the um, the cliffs there, uh, yeah. where the rhododendron gardens are, and it has a fantastic collection of rhododendrons going up the the terraces. Yeah. Uh, of what would have been the sea cliffs of the island back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I love that I meant when I go up into Hoth and take those walks up into the hills or up into the, around the cliffs, um, I, I feel that connection to a kind of island sensibility. Yeah. And of course I connect to someone like Yeats who spent his teenage years in Hoth Mm-hmm. And he used to say that he'd put his ear to the ground to hear the heartbeat of the great mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and I think he first fell in love in Holt with a cousin, Laura Armstrong, I think her name was. And you get that sense um, when he talks about in his memoirs, uh, when he talks about his teenagers in Holt, that it was a very important kind of opening to. Uh, the forces of nature, like he would sleep out in the in the caves. Yeah. And he, yeah, and uh, so so I feel I would feel close so, to him wandering around. Yeah, I mean a similar wandering spirit that well, you. That kind of um, earth magic that he could do so well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When um, when were you last inspired to write? Can I ask? Just out of the blue. <laughs> Have you written anything today? No, but I did um, tidy up a poem and send it off this morning. The last poem I've written was called At the Spring Equinox. Yeah. So it was uh, for yesterday. Yeah. So, the, you know, that time in the year when you're kind of moving out of the drudgery of the dark yes. months yeah, yeah. into this extraordinary stretch, which is, I think, at this age, I mean, I'm in my 60s, I think that long stretch of light into the summer is the only thing that keeps me on the Absolutely. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. start a downhill slide on the 21st <laughs> of June. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. But I love Here this time of year and that light. So my last poem was about, again, it was a poem of memory and it probably grew out of writing The Island of Prospect because it looks at, a, um, as a teenager, moving from the north inner city to the edge of the city out in Finglas mm. and discovering a kind of pastoral there at the same time as I was discovering a pastoral in poetry. And it's funny, in the pastoral in poetry, I would have really resisted, you know? What does that mean, the pastoral? I mean, that tradition of romanticising land and nature and, you know, there'd be nearly all the clichés, poetic clichés in the English tradition are coming out of that pastoral you know, the panpipes and the shepherdesses and the mm. shepherds. And I would have totally rejected that. I would have seen myself as, uh, as a, you know, a young, a young poet as totally hard and urban and cutting edge and all that. And so this was a poem remembering that relationship to the pastoral, rejecting it, and yet at the same time being on the very edge of the city with like the smell of wet concrete at the same time as the blackthorn hedges. Yeah. Do you know where there were cows in the fields, but there were, you know, feral youth riding bareback horses through the new estates. So that kind of strange mixture at the edge of the yeah. city has always, I find it very interesting. Mm. So that's yesterday for the equinox, that's what I sent off. When you say you're, you were tidying it up, yeah, is that like tweaking little words yeah. or that kind of thing? Yeah. 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 Just so, and what are you looking for there? To, for it to flow, or for the, are you f- like the right word which gives the right imagery, or yeah, or to all tighten, of these it tighten, tighten it up, tighten it up. So you deleting a lot of stuff. More energy, and um, sometimes lines can be a bit flabby, and just trying to tighten them up a bit, or to see something that mightn't work. I mean, with time, time is the great editor. If you leave something for a while. You know, you come with these this distance. I was trying to get at in 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 the island poem. You know, this sense of um, a critical distance from your own making, from your own work. Yeah. So that you can see, try and see it with somebody else's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you when you? I often think of the quote from Hemingway. Uh, write drunk, edit sober. Mm-hmm. Do you tend to write drunk metaphorically? Do you tend to like try and write fast and then piece it together, or do you, it, is it quite a slow? Do you oh, I think right every poem demands its own um, process. Yeah, and they're not always. You know, they're, they're, something might come to you like on a you're scrabbling for a bit of paper on the dart or you're on your phone putting it in the notes yeah Uh, it can just come or you could spend a lot of time uh, maybe using received patterns of the lyric uh, you know making a lyric to a a uh, an inherited pattern so you would take another poem and or you take another like a form like a sonnet or oh yeah um you know, some of the, well, I, I love the song forms, like villanelles and sonnets, you know, uh, which are coming out of a lyric tradition. So I think some, you know, that that's some of the work too. Uh, or it could be just an organic form that is coming, line, lines and mm. falling as they will. But, and is uh, there a pattern to 
what what you like after the fact as in once heard Bruce Springsteen talking about like one of his albums Born in the USA and how he spent you know a lot of time working on half the songs and those are the songs that he doesn't like so much that the songs that just came out are the ones that stick with him do you have a similar thing or does it, is it there's no real pattern like sometimes you spend ages working on something and it's great and um, they well the French have a, a word for a poem that just comes they call it the donne a gift yeah so they are fantastic but you wouldn't be sitting around waiting for them because <laughs> they are like that they're a gift yeah and you might get a few every year if you were very very lucky yeah yeah so in order to keep up a, a process a practice it's like you if you're a painter painting one painting even if it is a masterpiece every five years it's not going to get you up, build up the head of steam to make yeah. the kind of discoveries that you want to make. Yes. So you, you really need a practice as well. Yeah. So when you're not inspired, you still have to keep in touch with your work, you know, or it could maybe vanish and turn up to know, be in the, in the headspace. Yeah, so you're putting yourself in the way of the muse. Yeah. I like to say that if she's looking for me, she might find me at my desk rather than in the pub waiting for inspiration, yeah. you know? Yeah, Where uh, I might be distracted. So there's that relationship with ongoing material. But you do live for those moments when something happens and it's almost like it's not... You're, it's like you're not really involved at all. Mm. And there's a, a flow through and something comes that you never imagined. The Island of Prospect podcast was presented and engineered by myself, Mark Canton, and produced by Jenny Taylor and Brina Casey.